This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. My name is Lise Kukkonen, and this is Practitioner's Viewpoint. In this series of podcasts, I will be interviewing practitioners from different fields on how they see the measurement of sedentary behavior and physical activity. Could activity tracking benefit them and their customers? What kind of research would support and benefit their work? And how should activity tracking technology be improved to fit what they do better? Today, I have the honor to introduce my guest, Dr. Matti Peura. Dr. Peura is an occupational health physician. In the past, he has worked as a plastic surgeon. Matti Peura helps people to overcome their medical issues and achieve well-being. Having been through a difficult time and a depression himself, he emphasizes the importance of an individual approach to healthy and active lifestyle. So in this episode today, we are going to talk about how to manage depression and how to be successful in making a change in your life. We will also get to hear Matti's thoughts about activity measurement, sedentary behavior, and daily physical activity. Ladies and gentlemen, I am happy to introduce Dr. Matti Peura. Welcome, Matti. Thank you. So, Matti, let's start with your professional background. How did all the roads lead to this point, and what is your story? Well, um, I am a, a specialist in occupational healthcare. Uh, Maybe the term is not so familiar to everyone, but um, there's this medical field in Finland and, and Europe, which is called occupational health. And we, we deal with um, occupational diseases as well as do risk assessment of uh, occupational uh, health hazards within different workplaces. Um, in addition to that, I have a PhD in uh, medicine and I did that in the faculty of uh, medicine in in the University of Helsinki in, in pharmacology in the pharmacology department my professional background in that sense is that I was to become a plastic surgeon and I was doing my residency and I started that approximately the same time or a bit later than I when I started the PhD project and eventually that led into a rediscovery of myself and novel theory or my theory how people should be treated and that led me into occupational healthcare. I have two daughters. I live in Helsinki in a beautiful garden area called Capula. The birds are, birds are singing outside and it's a sunny day. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Uh, I think you have an interesting background and um, you have also written a book about overcoming depression. Um, just uh, the first place, I would like to ask you, nowadays we use depression and burnout sometimes like synonyms, but uh, as a physician, what do you think about that? What's the... Um, difference depression is a medical um, diagnose I guess and burnout is not but uh, what is the difference well in depression you have the certain characteristics which when they are these um, 
not characteristics, but these symptoms are are prolonged. Um, uh, these can be such uh, some uh, such, such as an anhedony, so not the, the the ability not to to feel pleasure in life or uh, anxiety, um, fear, fearful thoughts, sleeplessness, mood disorders, sadness, and um, when when these symptoms are, are prolonged and and overexpressed. In, in in the person then you can clinically diagnose depression and it has to be prolonged for for several months because these um, feelings are also normal in, in life you can feel sadness and anxiety uh, without having depression but once they are prolonged and they are overexpressed in your life then you can say that the person has a clinic has clinical depression then burnout it's a tr- it's a tricky topic, also as an occupational health healthcare doctor. Since I I treat a lot of patients with um, overlapping symptoms of work fatigue as well as depression, and commonly the case is that underlying this uh, burnout symptoms lies an undiagnosed depression actually. But we can go more into detail about how a person can differentiate what is uh, actual burnout or job fatigue or fatigue from, from the work and what could be considered as clinical depression. Okay, we can talk about that maybe a little bit later. Um in this book, you describe that at one point you were afraid of doing surgery. You said that you, in the past you were a plastic surgeon and now you're an occupational health physician. So could you tell us more about your own situation? What kind of thoughts did you get? And um, like getting this fear, is this common among surgeons? Well, there's this joke in in, uh, in Finnish. I don't know if it's in English, but... Uh, that uh, what what is common with a mole like like this animal mole which digs in the ground and and a bad surgeon and the answer is that when both of these like the bad surgeon and the mole hustle around the end result is uh, uh dirt or ground so so it's like a sarcastic quite black humorous joke so but that's the truth, basically. Once you are a surgeon, you are 100% responsible of your work. Uh, you cannot make mistakes. And during the, the training process, you learn to see your work through this constant risk, in some sense, that you have to be able to tolerate the risk and the uncertainty and also uh, these worst say, worst case scenarios, which of course happen, and um, the question was whether surgeons in general uh, have fear. I would say everyone has fear. I mean, surgeons are humans as the rest of us, and there are different ways how they deal with the fear. And also, um, I would say having depression or anxiety is common among surgeons. It's not that much talked about, but um, definitely 
it is there. Um, maybe anesthesiologists, um, the problem with anesthesia, anesthesia doctors, that's more common because the, even the suicide rates have been quite high among anesthetists. So, yes, oh, okay. because uh, yeah. also their, their work is also similar that they have to bring the back, patient back to life from the sleep and and there are many things that can, can go wrong in addition that they do very hard uh, emergency uh, medicine as well with critical care patients yeah i guess we don't often think about that you know you have this uh, glory of being a surgeon or and uh, quite often we don't actually think that you can't really have bad days at work or if you do it can have so bad consequences so um, I can definitely see how that can become a little bit, or not even a little bit, but um, very stressful. Or how is that what you felt? This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian. From researchers to researchers. Well, basically, I would say that kind of in the point that I had to choose what, what I want to do in my life, but I, I had to face this fear that, okay, that I had to really, because when you want, when you're in the surgical training, you, you advance step by step. So first you do the really simple procedures in guidance, and then gradually you become more independent, do more difficult procedures. And then that's the point when the responsibility also grows. And uh, uh, that was the time when I thought that, okay, that um, if I make a mistake, that could, it can be potentially fatal. So I had, to, I had to deal with this problem. And then I started reading neurobiology quite a lot and starting to understand fear. Like, what is fear? What, is, what, is, what does fear actually want to tell me? And... Um, through this understanding how the brain actually works within a fear situation, I started to develop this kind of, well, theory of life, basically, that how to overcome come these barriers or, or obstacles of fear in your life. And once I, once I kind of understood that, okay, maybe, maybe I, I found something with this idea and maybe I could apply it also in my work. And then I, then I thought that, well, I'm better at this <laughs> helping and understanding these problems related to mental health. And I'm a good surgeon, but I'm not the best. So then I made the decision that, okay, well, I can't be the best surgeon. So I'd rather be uh, the best in this uh, <laughs> lifestyle medicine or occupational healthcare. So that's, that was kind of the idea what led me, led me to, to, to um, continue my career in occupational healthcare. Oh, okay. And so, as we are coming to this um, next question that I had in mind, so who are your patients now, and uh, what is your professional philosophy? Well, 
at least in Finland, I would say that uh, 90, 90 or 80 to 90 percent of my patients are suffering from mental health problems uh, like minor to major depression, uh, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, addiction, um, then um, musculoskeletal pain, different back, uh, shoulder ache pain, nerve pains, and related chronic pains. So these are patient, people, people who have um, uh, chronic illnesses, which begins to affect their workability. So my my work basically is to guide them through this difficult proce- process into a new way of living, basically, because that's what it is to to help a person really. In my opinion, that's my personal philosophy is that my aim is to cure them, basically cure the thought process. And uh, it's kind of related to my own story that um, once I really felt what depression feels like and I and I dug myself up from the ground or the hole from the ground, I understood that actually it's possible that the brain is plastic so it means that or there's plasticity in the brain so it means that we can rearrange our thinking processes we can understand the world in a different uh, angle so this is nothing new but somehow modern day people have seemed to or seem to have forgotten that that we have this innate ability i guess that um, ability you attach quite a lot to the values that everybody has um and do you teach people or i don't know if teach is the correct word but um i guess you use values in goal setting yeah it's the the value the concept of values is um it's not that easy we we talk a lot about values we have different values safety righteousness equality whatever but actually in my opinion the most important thing is that what is the definition of the value? What needs to happen in your life or in the society for this value to be, um, to, what is the right word? So that, that this value, that you feel that you have achieved this value. So basically, I mean, I usually take an example as from, from um, children who have uh, grown up in, in a family where there has been alcohol abuse. And these film children tend tend to develop a false understanding of safety. So they have this because an alcoholic person is unpredictable. So the children develop uh, um, in a, these kind of mechanisms to to predict future events. So their definition of safety is that when I know what is going to happen, I feel safe. And these definitions of these of values is different with 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 anyone basically. So we have we have like specific definitions. Each of us, each of us have specific definitions of these values. And and the way to understand the value is actually to 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 start to open up to to, to start um, uh, analyzing or. or talking about these values that what what is what does actually have to happen for me to feel for example safety and then usually that's the point where the where the first 
first uh, revelation starts, a person starts to think that, okay, my, this, this doesn't sound rational. So, so. Okay. Do you see like um, that the values and the ac- actions are not in correlation? Well, usually it's so that the, the definition of the value or the definition of the steps in order to achieve the value are so they are unobtainable. For example, if you live in a world or if you live with a value that you have to predict everything, every event, you are in a constant conflict because that's not going to happen. Definitely, yeah. Uh, so so depre- de- I guess depression is becoming more common around the Western world. As a physician, what do you think is the reason for that? Well, I think this, the, the feeling of safety is definitely decreasing. So because we have a lot of uh, things uh, like many, many, many things in our world which, uh, uh, which kind of steal our attention from facts that should actually matter. So, and, and, and I think that kind of distances us from other people as well. So we are, we are quite far emotionally also from, from each other. Maybe the social media, maybe this kind of connectivity to, through, through uh, this video videos maybe it helps a bit but actually i think that that people really need physical contact and really need the feeling that okay i belong to some not tribe i would call it a tribe maybe it sounds crazy but that you you have to have the feeling of belonging to somewhere and that creates the feeling of safety that's like the beginning um, the first step to to at least prevent the feeling of of uh, loneliness and related depression and anxiety. Yeah, I, I agree with you from my own work as a physical therapist. I see uh, quite young people, maybe in their early 20s, and uh, nowadays uh, some of them work remotely, so they have actually never seen the, you know, the, the job, kind of the workplace, and they have never seen, uh, sometimes when they're working in IT sector, they have never seen the colleagues, So and, and the job, um, it can be very short, maybe a few months only, and then they are supposed to find a next one. So I quite often see in my practice, or have I have the feeling that, uh, and I think the young people, they are quite open about it, that they are not happy with this arrangement. I think that it's exactly what you just told about, that there's this belonging that we all need. And uh, if you don't have maybe the family yet, like your, you might have your parents, but you, you know, you left home already, and then you're in a new town. Uh, you don't have the working, you don't have your colleagues around, so it can be quite tricky, and it can feel quite lonely. I guess the pandemic has even uh, made this worse. So yeah, I agree with you there definitely. But uh, just like. Um, Maybe to sum up uh, this uh, first part of our our podcast, I guess overcoming depression is a long journey. So uh, what are the most common mistakes that other people do when trying to help somebody overcome depression? Or is there any way we can support the loved one who is going through this tough period of life? No, I think there's like, in the, in, in some sense, I think there's no wrong ways. I mean. Of course, when the person is in depression, it's, um, it, it requires a certain time period anyway for the brain to readapt or rearrange through, of course, therapy and the time related to this process. So basically, I mean, 
there's not that much to to do i mean of course the the ma- main thing is to to support the person support the basic feeling or to support the needs you know the need to be loved the need to be supported supported at, at least that's what i that that's what helped me and of course then work as a mirror to say that okay maybe maybe things are not as bad as you think they are but but still well i'm really pro therapy uh, i really support um therapy as a as a means that are, as a way to really overcome or really understand the the underlying reasons for the depression so the person needs time and therapy to actually then recover so that's one thing i mean the the relative or the close one cannot work as a therapist because they are biased anyway in their views and they well you can't go wrong but you you can't help a you can't kind of cure the other one unfortunately because you're in because you're inside the relationship and you're you're always biased you kind of like you always see you're always mixed with your own emotions that's how i see it i mean maybe maybe they are close relatives who are therapists as well and then but but i would say that that if you would ask a professional psychotherapist they would they would rather say that the the one who who really helps must be some some outsider some no, some neutral person okay 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 i don't know if i answered the so question we're going to have, but yeah but um. yeah de- yeah definitely I, I guess the answer was that that you you can be there uh, yeah. to support but you can't really yeah. cure yeah Yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a little break now. Thank you, Matti. And thank you for all our listeners. We will be back soon for the second part of our podcast. And in the second part, we'll discuss sedentary behavior, physical activity, and good practices to work with patients. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day